This podcast is brought to you by the Creation Academy, an apologetics ministry designed to teach, train, and inspire others to become strong defenders of the Christian faith and biblical creation. Launching early 2019, the Academy offers video and audio training with downloadable course workbooks, expert interviews, and exclusive Q&A sessions with leading creation scientists and apologists, quarterly ebooks covering a wide variety of subject matter, and even a private Facebook community where you'll fellowship and interact with a like-minded community of believers. If you want to be notified when the Academy goes live, and even help us design the experience from the ground up, head on over to www.jointca.co today and sign up for the waitlist. You'll get early access to the Facebook group for free as a thank you for joining listening to the creation academy a weekly podcast defending the truth of god's word in biblical creation science i'm your host steve Schramm, and this week we want to talk about a recent article that came out and uh different sources have reported on this and we want to bring it to you today uh with some thoughts and uh what we're going to do is 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 ask this question are are today's species recent are today's species recent now surely uh, many of you who are uh, involved in this discussion have seen these news reports coming out these news reports that um as it turns out all species on earth are somewhere between 100,000 to 200,000 years old. And of course, this also puts uh, humans in that same time bracket. As a matter of fact, as we'll, as we'll see, uh, what has happened here is these animal ages have been estimated by analogy to human um, mitochondrial uh, data and we'll we'll talk about that, and so uh, it sparked quite a bit of interest, as you can imagine, in the creation science community when you have got um, two evolutionists coming along uh, saying, "Look, all of the species representative on Earth today." are very recent. Now, of course, we know that 100 to 200,000 years is not recent in terms of young age creationism. But in terms of the evolutionary time scale, um, that is a, a massive, uh, very, very significant finding. As a matter of fact, the authors of the paper, um, uh, one of the authors claimed that he fought against this conclusion as hard as he possibly could, which of course that has um, a, a, a bit of a spiritual element to it as well. Uh, but nevertheless, he 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 fought against it, and as it turns out, he feels compelled by the research and by his and his colleagues' expertise that he must, in fact, accept 
this research. And so uh, if you've seen the title of this lesson, I titled it Creation in the News. Today's species are recent. And the reason I titled it that way is that I want to kind of introduce this as a new segment, not well, not a segment, but but maybe a special kind of show uh, in which we address a recent uh, piece of news that is very relevant to creation uh, or creation science. And so uh, uh, this will be the very first one of those kinds of episodes, uh, a creation in the news episode. And we're going to kind of talk about this uh, particular study and give some some thoughts uh, some thoughts on it. Now, I want to offer uh, a couple words of caution when we begin to look at things like this. First of all, I want to say that we want to be very careful not to make a law based on one new scientific study. Um, science is an imperfect discipline. Science um, does not have access to many of the important questions that we want to ask and attempt to answer as creationists. And uh, even though uh, this new scientific study has come out that uh, seems like we're at least pointing in the right direction. You know, kind of the old adage is the the time, uh, in one sense, is getting pushed back and back further because that helps them to explain more things. But in another sense, the data keeps bringing uh, the uh, the the time scale closer and closer. And of course, the old creation scientist adage is that eventually they're just going to land on six thousand years or so. Um, yeah, whether or not that'll happen, I don't know. Uh, but the point, of course, that we want to uh, make is when a new scientific study comes out, there is often uh, lots that must be taken into consideration before we can really draw anything meaningful from it. Uh, folks have to interact with it. Um, the data that is actually reported needs to be fleshed out in kind of a more verbose fashion. And so we want to be careful not to not to get all excited about this and make something of it that it's not. All right, the second word of caution that kind of goes hand in hand with what I just said is we want to approach everything with an initial degree of skepticism. Uh, it may seem like good research on its face, but it might not really be so good after all. And I'm saying the things that I'm saying for a very specific reason because it actually turns out that this study, if true, might not be as good for recent creationism as it sounds at first glance. Now, don't get me wrong. It's very easy to understand the, the appeal of this. Um, if we, uh, you know, I'm reminded of when, uh, when, 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 uh, when folks like to tell me that the the flood story is just a, a recapitulation of some sort of 
different Babylonian accounts, or or the creation account, for example, is a recapitulation of different um, Mesopotamian creation accounts and things like this, and they give you the details, or they give you the superficial rendering of what happens, and it's like, oh, well, that sounds exactly the same. Maybe we're in trouble here. But then when you dig into the actual details of it, the actual differences are quite astounding. Well, this is kind of what's happening here. Uh, if you if you just look at it, um, you you look at some of the um, some of the things that the authors said in the study, especially some of their comments to the news media afterwards, uh, who have engaged them with this. You know, they're saying, well, uh, there was a catastrophic event one hundred to two hundred thousand years ago that wiped out every species on Earth, and all the species that we have now today are recent, roughly the same age. And we fought against this as hard as we could. Uh, but, you know, uh, and, and this puts all the modern species occurring at the same time. All this, that, and the other thing, back and forth. And you just read down through it, and you've got some creationists who are, understandably, saying, well, hey, man, this looks pretty good. Now if we can just get that time scale down, if we can get them off of those uh, off of those ages given to them by geology and uh and and start to question those dates, maybe we will finally see them landing somewhere around the young age time scale. But the problem is when you dig into the actual details of of what is happening in this paper, we find that in light of current creationist biology, this could actually be pretty problematic. And so we want to take a look at that today and try to see if we can get to the uh, to the bottom of it. Um, now, Dr. Todd Wood, uh, we've talked about Dr. Wood before on this uh, on this podcast, and Dr. Wood is probably one of the uh, premier creationist uh, biologists um, active today. He is working in the field of baromenology primarily. Um, I believe that's where he focuses uh, the majority of his research. And so what he is trying to do is um, really he is on the forefront of, of helping to build a biological model for young age creationists. Um, he is uh, helping us to define um, those boundaries in organisms that tells us what um, what kind of organ what kind of organism uh, something is, uh, what uh, baromen it is, what, where where it fits in in the creationist classification system. That is the kind of work that he is doing. So he has uh, quite a bit of insight into this particular field. And he wrote an article in response to to this. And the title of his article is, uh, it's a question, are all animal species really the same age? And um, here's the thing. I take just about everything Dr. Todd Wood says pretty seriously. And um, his his track record of honesty is, is the reason why I do that. Um, I really believe when I get something from Dr. Todd Wood, I know that it is not embellished. It's not fluffed at all. Uh, it's the it's the truth as far as he's aware of it, and he will humbly admit if he's wrong. Um, and so I appreciate that about him. And so when he comments on something, and what he says is uncomfortable, 
it, it causes me to pause. And so I took some time really, really reading over his, his evaluation of the paper. Of course, he's read the paper. It's very uh, pertinent to, to what he's doing. I have not read the paper uh, for myself uh, in full disclosure. Um, I've skimmed through it, looked at different important parts of it to kind of get a sense of um, what they were getting at for myself. But, but generally, I have read his response to it and and that's just about all. And again, I'm not apologizing for that one bit. I really do believe that if 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 you're going to get the most truthful rendering of it, it's going to come um, from from someone like Dr. Todd Wood. Uh, I have observed some comments made by Dr. Nathaniel Jensen in regards to this, and we'll talk about those as well. Uh, so we're going to use um, Dr. Wood's article because really it's the only one that I could find, especially from a creationist perspective. Um, that's really giving uh, the kind of perspective that we need to understand on this. Uh, so we're going to um, use this uh, primarily to gain insights from the research. And, and we'll keep in mind uh, that for right now, there are no, um, that I'm aware of, uh, no scholarly responses to this uh, specific piece of research um, because it just came out. It's brand new. Um, and so I uh, will be following this. I think this is going to be very, very interesting in days to come to see what comes out of this. Um, this is actually one of those areas where we might actually be siding with the evolutionist by the time all is said and done. Certainly not because um, not because we require the sort of age that they do, um, but because largely we recognize that um, species change. Um, I, I, I mean, these are these are things that we can see, that we can understand. Species change, and so we want to um, affirm that as as recent creationists, we want to be on board with that. And we realize, of course, that the timescales are different, but nevertheless, uh, this um, this diversity of change uh, is important to the creation model um, as it has been built thus far. And if we lose that, then we um, could be losing something important. And as we'll see, that's not to say that it's problematic in a in a um, in a definite sense, in other words, there is a way uh, that we could understand creation biology in light of this new research, but the warning we want to give at first glance is not to get overly excited about this, uh, because if what this article presents is true, then we could have quite a bit of work uh, to do in reevaluating our understanding of the Earth's biology. All right. Now, the um, I want to go through this using something that I call, and this is a made-up thing. If you think it's silly, that's fine. If you think it's helpful, uh, great. Um, but I call it the E-I-E-I-O method. The E-I-E-I-O method. And this is kind of the way that I, I personally, uh, and I'm just now bringing it out on the podcast, of course, but I, I, this is how I personally... Um, digest news articles like this that might be relevant to our discussions to to 
to science, to uh, really to anything um, in an apologetics sense, anything that is, is pressing against Christianity, I'd like to use this method. First, I want to examine the issue, EI, examine issue. Uh, I want to take a look at what's actually happening. What is the claim? Who is making the claim? What, what, what is the claim about? What is in regards to what is the best understanding that we can get from the claim before we start to evaluate? So we want to examine the issue, and then we want to evaluate the interpretation. Uh, if you have been interested in creation science for any amount of time, you of course realize that there is always going to be an interpretation placed on um, on the data. And so we want to evaluate that and get an idea of what's going on there. And then finally, we want to offer, that's the O, a possible solution. Offer a possible solution. That doesn't mean we have to have the answer. It means that maybe we can have an answer or at least um, start to understand uh, what's going on. So I've got a lot to bring out to you today. Hopefully we'll get to it all. Um, so let's go ahead and dive in. So uh, we want to, first of all, then examine the issue examine the issue. So there's a new paper, um, as most of you are well aware, and it was published in the journal Human Evolution, and it is by Mark, I hope I'm saying this name right, uh, Stokel and David, um, either Taylor or Thaler, I'm not sure if that H is silent, spelled T-H-A-L-E-R. So I'm going to call them Mark Stokel and David Thaler. Um, and so according to the Tech Times, which is the first place where I saw this news article uh, break, here is kind of the summary of what has happened. Quote, in a massive genetic study, senior research associate at the program for the human environment at Rockefeller University, Mark Stokel, and University of Basel geneticist David Taylor discovered that virtually 90% of all animals on Earth appeared at right around the same time. More specifically, they found out that 9 out of 10 animal species on the planet came to being at the same time as humans did some 100,000 to 200,000 years ago. This conclusion is very surprising, says Taylor, and I fought against it as hard as I could, end quote. So you can see if we just read that superficially, um, the dating does not line up, but this does seem to cohere quite nicely with uh, at least a vague understanding of how young age creationists understand history. And so this particular study, the, the way that they've done it is by using something called DNA barcoding. And um, according to Wood, this is a means of classifying species using a small bit of DNA. Uh, for animals, this DNA is a 600 BP, or base pair, uh, region of the mitochondrial CO1 gene. And so essentially, this helps uh, to give researchers a somewhat quick and efficient way of categorizing a particular species. And quite literally, they are able to take this gene sequence and um, harvest from that a, a barcode, a genetic barcode, a way of identifying a uh, particular 
species. And uh, in some of the research I was doing on this, it turns out that, that because of the data that has been gathered on this, um, they have been able to locate uh, food store, uh, like grocery stores that have the wrong kind of like fish and different things. It's very, very interesting what they've been able to do um, with this. I mean, they've actually identified harmful foods that were in grocery stores um, using this method. And apparently it's a lot quicker and more efficient to be able to barcode. Um, of course, instead of classifying based on different, um, you know, sequencing, certainly uh, the entire genome of an organism or using other features or other methods of classification. Um, this is a uh, pretty much the standard now, as far as I'm aware. All right. So um, here are some of the general findings that uh, in Dr. Wood's examination that he came um, across. Now, to set expectations, he does point out, uh, quote, they don't present much of their data. Uh, this is more a review article with a few diagrams illustrating what they're talking about. So if you're looking for primary results in this paper, you won't find much, close quote. So first of all, the authors argue that the vast majority of DNA barcodes are uh, extremely similar within species and more different when comparing different species. And so Dr. Wood uh, gives the example that if you sample 100 different rattlesnakes, the eastern diamondbacks would be very similar to each other, but distinctly different from um, western diamondbacks. And the same would hold true for the western diamondbacks. These species that can be recognized with DNA barcodes are overwhelmingly exactly the same as the species recognized by a consensus of experts. That's true for birds, mammals, reptiles, insects, and common animals. It's a bit more difficult with um, unpopular animals like worms, but the popular groups like people like to study uh, have uh, roughly 94% match between the DNA barcode clusters and the expert-recognized species. With unpopular groups that few people study, there's only about a 70% match between the DNA barcode clusters and the recognized species. That is probably just neglect, though. So, um, essentially, that is the comparison that's being drawn. He's just saying that when a species, uh, when you're talking about inside of one particular uh, species, um, barcodes are extremely uh, similar and everything kind of lines up with what the experts already classify as a species based on, of course, the other means that they used. So generally speaking, then, I mean, this is a fairly reliable uh, method. I think that's, you know, one of the points that's, that's being get across here. All right. Now, secondly, uh, Stokel and Baylor point out the surprising result that most species have roughly amount of, uh, the same amount of variability between different members of the species. The average is a 0.2% difference, meaning that when you compare any two members of the same species, they will differ only by about one nucleotide out of the 600 in their DNA barcode. Now, this is pretty significant. Um, you have to, to really think about this. The um, kind of the general uh, corpus of evolutionary theory is this vast 
amount of change over time. And, um, uh, uh, of course, to some degree, we we expect a pretty good amount of genetic dissimilarity in between organisms, even if they are of uh, the same species. I mean, especially uh, considering that they might be found in, in different kinds of uh, geographic locations and things like that. Of course, there's a lot that has to be considered there, which um, it kind of even makes it more strange. That I mean, think about that. One nucleotide out of 600 is different based on that assessment um, in their DNA barcode. That's pretty uh, uh, significant. Finally, then, the authors make an analogy with results in humans. They claim that the mitochondrial DNA diversity of human beings, which in this region of the mitochondrial DNA is about 0.1%, is the result of a recent demographic event. In other words, they say that all humans got their mitochondrial DNA from a small population that they claim could be as few as a founding pair that lived only 100 to 200,000 years ago. So therefore, by analogy, since most other species have similarly low diversity in their DNA barcodes, they too must have originated from a small population, possibly even a founding pair, that lived less than a quarter million years ago. In other words, all species are about the same age. Now, this is... Lining up to sound very, very interesting, <laughs> uh, to, to say the least. Um, we're talking about uh, some kind of event that caused all animals that we've seen here today, all species to be here today, or at least most of them, to be about the same age. And it's likely a result of some kind of demographic event, whether it be a bottleneck or whatever. We're going to talk about that here in just a minute. Um, so this is uh, looking pretty significant. Now, on this point, Dr. Uh, Nathaniel Jensen uh, pointed out to someone he was uh, having a conversation with. Uh, he said, first of all, their absolute time scale is not based on measured mitochondrial DNA mutation rates, but on geology. So, of course, he's not referring here when he says that uh, to this paper in any specific way. He's, he says their absolute time scale. Of course, he's, he's referring to the fact that most, you know, uh, most dating um, is done at the geologic level. In other words, that's not even questioned, um, the age of the earth or, or the age of the universe, things like that, of course, don't come into play. Um, and in a certain sense, I mean, that you know, I mean, that's fine. I don't expect necessarily the biologist to question the astronomer's uh, dates or the uh, geologist's dates either. And so, but the point he's trying to make is that on their view, the absolute time scale is based on geological um, data and not the measured mitochondrial rates. And if you're familiar at all with Dr. Jensen's research, um, he wants to kind of show 
based on the mutation rates of mitochondrial DNA, that we can use that information to help get an understanding of the age of the Earth writ large. And uh, so that is certainly um, a part of that. Now, um, secondly, he says that a time scale based on measured mitochondrial DNA mutation rates gives a date of 6,000 years ago for the origin of humans. Of course, that's based on research he's done. Thirdly, by the logic of this paper, or the paper in reference, other species originated around the same time as humans, for, therefore, other species arose within 6,000 years. And again, he's concluding that on the basis of his um, research on mitochondrial DNA. Uh, so he mentions three papers, and we'll put uh, links to those there in the lesson notes, which uh, serve to uh, support the second point that he makes Namely, um, that a time scale based on measured uh, mitochondrial DNA mutation rates gives a date of 6,000 years ago for the origin of humans. However, and again, I'm, uh, with, with research that is so new um, that we really don't have a, a, a wholly adequate creationist response yet, especially, uh, I have to preface, you know, I have to give a couple of, of, of disclaimers as we go throughout. So I want to I want to say that let's be cautious here. Um arguing based on the logic of this paper as Jensen is doing could actually be detrimental to most of creationist thought on biology. And um I've actually reached out and asked for some clarification on this, but uh, 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 based on just what I know, I mean, Dr. Wood and Dr. Jensen are 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 doing similar um, uh, kinds of research, but they're largely unrelated. And so I'm kind of wondering, um, because here we have one scientist who is kind of um, taking things a little better, so to speak, uh, than uh, Dr. Wood, who, who we're reading after here. And it could be that he shares the same concerns uh, Dr. Jensen does, but perhaps um, he's just not as reserved of a person. I mean, it could be a personality thing. I, I don't know. Um, I, I do know that I have read Jensen's research uh, on the mitochondrial age of things, and, I mean, it looks pretty good. Um, it looks pretty good. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, I, I think that... Um, one way or the other, we are on to something big here. Whether it means a confirmation of current creationist biology or whether it means a total reimagining of current creationist biology, we don't know that yet. Nevertheless, um, one way or the other, it will probably be significant. So we'll see what happens. However, what I want to caution here is arguing by the logic of this paper because it could be seriously flawed. Um and so we'll see what comes of that. Okay, so that's the issue. We examined er, the issue, okay? We looked at um, exactly what the claim is. Hopefully you don't have any questions about uh, about that in your mind. I think we've made it pretty clear. Um, essentially, this massive new genetic study puts all species of animals coming in at about the same age. This conclusion is reached by analogy to humans because, as it turns out, humans have very relatively low um G genetic differences within their species on that region of the mitochondria. Um, and so what we want to do then, or what the authors of the paper want to do, is argue that by analogy, since animals also have a very low um, uh, genetic uh, 
dissimilarity uh, within a species that likely were dealing with the same kind of thing, that they got their mitochondrial DNA from a small population. They claim it could even be as small as a founding uh, pair. Okay, so we want to then evaluate the interpretation. So what is the evolutionary um, kind of response on this? What is the perspective that they are, that they're giving on this? Well, I've uh, taken an excerpt again here from the Tech Times where I first saw this news article uh, uh, break, first saw this study mentioned. So I'd like to just kind of give you a paragraph that they give that to me kind of sums it, sums it up. Quote, in analyzing the CO1 uh, of 100,000 species, Stokel and Thaler arrived at the conclusion that most animals appeared simultaneously. They found that the neutral mutation across species were not as varied as expected. Neutral mutation refers to the slight DNA changes that occur across generations. They can be compared to tree rings because they can tell how old a certain species or individual is. It's uh, as to how that could have happened, it's unclear. A likely possibility is the occurrence of a sudden event that caused large-scale environmental trauma and wiped out the majority of our species. Viruses, ice ages, successful new competitors, loss of prey, all these may cause periods when the population of an animal drops sharply, explains Jesse Oshibel, director of the Program for Human Environment. Such times give rise to sweeping genetic changes across the planet, causing new species to appear. However, the last time such an occurrence took place was 65 million years ago, when an asteroid hit the Earth and killed off the dinosaurs and half of all other species on the planet. Close quote. So, here we've got a glaring problem. So, no one, of course... We don't expect this, but no one is questioning the already established uh, geologic history. It, it, it's, it, that's just not even a consideration. Look, we know the last event of this kind was 65 million years ago. Yet it appears that something else might have happened a quarter million years ago. Uh, so, you know... Uh, Maybe the point I want to bring out right here is the discontinuity between different fields. There is, in fact, a discontinuity in different data points between different fields where things don't line up. And so we have to kind of massage things in such a way where it does line up. Now, again, I'm not necessarily hoping that Stokel and Thaler are right on this research. And the reason for that is because I do think it could cause an interesting difficulty for most of creationist thought on biology at this time. Uh, based on what Wood is is getting ready to argue here. Um, but nevertheless, I just think it's interesting and worth pointing out that, you know, there's really no question uh, in the uh, mind of the evolutionists that the last time one of these extinction events happened was 65 million years ago uh, when the dinosaurs were gone. Now, of course, this... Um, it mentions the asteroid hitting the Earth. And again, I'm, this is not a scientific source I'm quoting Um um, here, of course, this is just a reporter on a on a website. So, um, you know, this could be a person who is not really aware, but there's about six different 
theories as to what actually killed off uh, the dinosaurs. It's certainly not a settled fact. Uh, scholars are divided on this uh, from an evolutionary perspective. Um, nobody is dogmatically uh, claiming the asteroid hypothesis. It might be the most widely held. Um, I think right now, though, the most widely held is that they simply just evolved to birds. So anyway, that is... Um, uh, it's something for a different time to look at. But I just wanted to point out that that is kind of the general uh, evolutionist reception to it. I'm sure others would have plenty of different opinions, but that's um, the one that I found. All right, now, so what is a possible creationist perspective on this? Well, based on Wood's primary observations, let's give you a few things here. So first of all, he says, let's recognize that this research, if correct on its face, would make a mess of created kinds, or baramin, as we often talk about here on uh, the show. This article claims that all species are roughly the same age, and creationist work over the past 20 years has generally agreed that the created kind from which species descended um, contains more than one species. A few created kinds contain many species. And this is why we argue, by the way, that uh, the created kind is probably somewhere around the family level, if we were to be general. Okay, So this research would imply that the created kind is actually the same as the species, if we interpret it on the face. I think that's possible, he says, but it would require a big adjustment to creationist thinking. And he gives this example that might help you to understand. I don't know if you've been to the Ark Encounter, but he says, for example, most of the Ark Encounter exhibits with their imaginative, creative kind sculptures would have to be ripped out and redone. So that would kind of give you an idea that we're talking about something that would look a lot more like modern species, um, being that which were on the Ark. Now, um, he points out some problems with the sample that was used in the paper, and this starts to kind of lead a little bit into his uh, skepticism on the results. All right, now, so first of all, DNA uh, differences in DNA barcodes within a species are not the same thing as differences in barcodes between species. In other words, it's kind of like um, comparing apples with oranges. Um, it, it it doesn't account for mutations having taken place at all in the male germline. And why is that? Well, if you know anything about mitochondria, it's because they are inherited only in the female line. So he gives a hypothetical example. So let's pretend that our hypothetical mutation um, a, a mutation has occurred, and let's pretend that it's occurred in a female. Now, that female has one mitochondrion um, that has a different DNA barcode than all its other mitochondria. Oh, yes, each animal has many more mitochondria than cells. What you need is a mutation that happens in an egg cell so that it can be passed on to the next generation. Uh, but that's still not good enough. In human beings, egg cells can contain 100,000 to 600,000 mitochondria, each with its own copy of the DNA barcode. So that one mutant barcode has to increase in number. Ideally, it has to happen sometime early in the germline so that its numbers increase, which therefore increases the probability that it will be passed on to offspring. 
Okay, so let's assume that the mutant barcode happened in the germline early enough that an egg cell ended up with maybe 50% of these mutant mitochondria. Let's also assume that the particular egg cell was fertilized and produced a female offspring. Once it's in the egg cell, it will be passed along to every cell in the female offspring's body. Okay, so that's how the mutation gets into the population. And getting into the population is the important part. Mutations aren't really detectable by barcode sequencers uh, unless they are frequent enough in an organism to be sequenced. So we have to have... Um, uh, we have to have a frequency within the organism itself in order to get there. But there are many steps that have to take place um, from step one until that one. Um, and, of course, we have to account for the fact that we're losing half of the... Um, uh, well, I don't want to say half, but we're losing a lot of the sample uh, size potential uh, because these types of... Um, Inherited DNA do not um, take place in the male germline. Okay, so now then, so they have to be frequent enough in an organism to be sequenced, but then they also have to be frequent enough in the population to actually be sampled. So Wood remarks here, if I'm studying a widespread species of butterfly that has maybe 100,000 individuals alive at any time, I'm not likely to catch that one butterfly that just got a mutant barcode from its mother. If we really want to have a good chance of detecting that mutant barcode, we need to increase the frequency of the mutant in the population. In other words, there needs to be lots of individuals with the same mutation. Now, we can only get the sort of mutation frequency that we need in a population two ways, selection and drift. But Stokel and Thaler report that the vast majority of differences within species are synonymous, which they claim are not selectable. In other words, most DNA barcode differences observed between members of the same species don't make the owners any better or worse at reproducing than any other sequence. Natural selection can't work, they say. Now, Dr. Wood comments here that there's a little bit more nuance behind that, but um, if we grant the above, then the only way that mutations within a species could increase um, in frequency enough to be detectable is by drift, which, according to Wood, is random fluctuations in the population. Now, for example, um, let's say our female butterfly with the mutant barcode just happens to lay all her eggs in a place where a forest fire destroys them before they hatch. That mutant barcode just drifted out of the population. Once the mother butterfly dies, the new mutant barcode dies with her. None of her offspring survive. Alternatively, maybe there's some kind of air pollution that interferes with butterfly development, reducing the number of butterfly babies. But our mutant butterfly happens to flap her way up a mountain and lay her 1,000 eggs in a place where there is very little pollution. So all her offspring hatch and grow to be adult butterflies. 
when all the other butterflies in the same species get only half of their eggs to hatch. On the other hand, maybe there's a terrible drought in one region, and half of the butterflies in the species die. Our mutant butterfly happens to be in a different region where the butterflies survive. That drought effectively doubles the frequency of the mutant barcode all by itself. This sort of thing happens every generation, so that the population of frequencies of mutations in DNA barcodes should fluctuate up and down. In some generations, 20% of the individuals in the population have the mutant barcode. But a few generations later, 30% might have it. A few generations after that, the frequency might drop to 27%. Generally speaking, though, the rule of thumb is that a mutant with a higher frequency is probably older than a mutant with a lower frequency. That makes sense. If you start out with a mutation in a single individual, it will take many generations before the offspring of that one individual become numerous enough to account for a large fraction of the population. Now, um, that's a lot, but what does it mean? Well, um, depending on the frequency of the barcode in the population, um, you could interpret a species as old or young. But that's the problem in question. But Wood reports that Stokel and Thaler didn't report that. And I don't think um, the DNA barcode database is set up to answer that question yet. The barcode database currently just samples specimens. According to Stokel and Thaler, they've sampled 5 million individual specimens from 100,000 animal species, which averages out to about 50 specimens per species. Is that enough to estimate the population frequencies of barcode mutants, Wood asks? Well, consider the case um, of the white-tailed deer in the United States. There are an estimated 30 million white-tailed deer. There's no way that 50 individuals represent the entire population of white-tailed deer. Other species aren't so numerous, but 50 is still a pretty small sample of a species. There are thousands of human sequences that have been studied to estimate population frequencies. So um, that's going to kind of conclude the interpretive section of this, evaluating the interpretation. And you can kind of see where, um, where we're ending up. What we, what we have here is um, potentially a, a data set that is not going to give us the most accurate of information. Because again, we are, the, the whole logic of this paper, we're going to see this here in just a minute, but the whole logic of this paper kind of draws an analogy between what has apparently happened in a human, um, in the human germline, um, and what could have happened in the animal germline. But this study alone does not really conclusively answer that because of the aforementioned problems um, with the sample, for example. We don't exactly know um, what the population frequency is. They did not give us that. 
Um, and Wood is pretty skeptical that we're getting accurate information because if we're only sampling about 50 of a particular species, then it's likely not indicative of the entire species. And of course, um, the analogy is being drawn with humans, um, which has um, thousands of human sequences that have been studied to to get this population frequency. So it's um, it is very very preliminary at this point. I hope you're seeing that. It's very preliminary at this point because uh, much much more work is going to have to be done to really get to the bottom of this. So. Uh, let's begin to to wind down a little bit and offer a possible solution. We have examined the issue, EI. We have evaluated the interpretation, EI. And now we're going to offer uh, a possible solution. That's the O. All right. Now, Wood begins to offer some thoughts as to the actual implications of this study. So he asks, how can Stokel and Thaler claim that all of these species originated at the same time? How can they say that the different barcodes within a species are young? Only by analogy. They look at what has been done with human mitochondrial DNA, and they conclude by analogy that other animals must be just like them, since all animal species have roughly the same number of barcode differences within the species. At least in this study, they haven't done anything to deliberately estimate the date of each species. They just say that the human situation probably applies to everything else. So carefully notice that... Um, at first glance, this might have seemed like primary research being done on uh, specific animal species estimating the age and and then coming to the conclusion that um, all species are around the same age, somewhere around 100,000 to 200,000 years old. But that's not what the species concluded, nor to my knowledge was it meant to. Um, simply, the authors were drawing an analogy against the particular human story, which, they, which everybody's pretty much in agreement on. Um, in uh, evolutionary uh, terms. Okay. Now, secondly, Wood says that it basically presents what Stokel and Thaler consider to be the most likely hypothesis. Uh, but as far as he could tell, there's no actual test of the hypothesis. Uh, so again, much more work has to be done here. And then he says the writers propose a, a bottleneck in the population, uh, but they've not shown that this explanation is correct. They uh, assume that's kind of what happened, but again, they've not actually shown this. They just assume that that's the best explanation for the way things are. Okay, now, what of the differences then between species? Um, how do we make sense of that? Well, he says the differences between species tend to be fixed. In other words, each member of um, each species has the same barcode nucleotide, and they happen to be different. So let's say, for the sake of argument, that all white-tailed deer have an adenine at the 10th position in the barcode sequence, but all mule deer have a guanine at the same position. The species are different, but within each species, the population frequency is 100%. These are fixed differences. Um, the cumulative effect of uh, fixed differences is what makes species different from one another. Why do white-tailed deers raise their head to run, but mule deer don't? Fixed differences. Why do 
Tigers have stripes and lions have manes. Fixed differences. Why do zebras have stripes and horses don't? Again, you get the point. Uh, fixed um, differences. But now, fixing differences takes any particular number of things in order to happen. Uh, time, first of all, which is sort of the evolutionary go-to, isn't it? Uh, time um, or natural selection, possibly a bottleneck. So um, there's a curious tension here, though. Um, a mutant barcode within a species is probably pretty young on average, but a fixed difference between species is older, possibly much older, according to Wood. How much older? Well, it depends on the number of fixed differences. The more fixed differences, the older the ancestor of those two species. What Stokoe and Thaler want to explain is what they see as a disconnect. Now, here's the rub. Why are there so many fixed differences between very similar species, implying that the species originated a long time ago, but so few differences within that species, implying that the species are much younger? They propose that modern animal species have undergone a common population bottleneck, possibly related to uh, the Ice Age. Or maybe we should say an Ice Age there. Uh, it just depends which one you are talking about. But now Wood mentions another possibility that they haven't even mentioned in their paper. Uh, the possibility of extinction. This is another element that gets brought into it. Um, so, for example, consider horses. There has been ancient DNA extracted from two groups of extinct horses. Uh, the genus um, Hippodion is a group of extinct South American horses, and the New World stilt-legged NWSL horses are also known from the fossil record of North America. As you might imagine, the NWSL have long legs. Based on their mitochondrial DNA, from which we get barcodes, we find the NWSL horses fill in the gap between domesticated horses and all other horses. Um, the Hippodion um, sequences bridge the gap between all modern equids and the rhinos. Stokel and Thaler claim that these species have discrete barcodes and that there are no intermediates between the species, but that isn't quite right. There are intermediates, and they're known from the fossil record. So here is Wood's biggest concern with this study. This is a bit of a lengthy paragraph, but I'm just going to read it verbatim because I want you to kind of get his take on this. Um, you know, I'm not a scientist, certainly no kind of biologist. Uh, I just give you um, the best looking information that I can. I, I give you what what I, I try to, to filter out as the most accurate information. And so here is Wood's concern on this. He says, mitochondrial DNA uh, barcodes can be rapidly lost from a population due to drift. So lineages randomly go extinct, and they do so at a high rate. Every time a female with a unique barcode fails to produce offspring or produces only sons, that mitochondrial line is lost. Is, is it really all that surprising, then, uh, that within a species, most barcodes are very similar? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. Stokel and Thaler don't really do calculations or simulations to convince the reader that the result they observe is extraordinary and worthy of an extraordinary explanation, like a common bottleneck or all animals for all animal species on Earth. 
This actually matters quite a lot more than you might expect. Stokel and Thaler want to argue based on analogy with humans, but that may be deceptive. The common mitochondrial ancestor for modern humans is thought to be between 100,000 and 200,000 years old, but when you examine the rare variations found in the nuclear genome, which we inherit half from our mothers and half from our fathers, the average age is 1 to 5 million years old. So, if you only look at the mitochondrial barcode, our species look extremely young, uh, but if you count the nuclear genome, we could be 10 to 50 times older. Why do we all have such similar mitochondrial DNA? There's been a high turnover of mitochondrial DNA due to extinction. I'm not convinced there's any other special explanation required. I mean, that makes sense. Um... In other words, what Dr. Wood is saying here is this could be uh, making much ado about nothing uh, because the extinction hypothesis, which the authors didn't even note in their paper, um, could possibly be the only explanation we need to explain the difference between the vast um, uh, amount of, of age difference, um, again, calculated on evolutionary terms, uh, between what what we get from nuclear DNA and what we get from uh, the mitochondrial DNA. So to summarize and conclude then, uh, Wood here offers some talking points. And this might be a good way to kind of summarize it for, for somebody who, who asks you about this. So first, um, number one, they have some interesting data, and a lot of it, uh, but their paper argues from analogy and not analysis. They do not show by calculation or simulation that the barcodes are of recent origin at the same time. Nevertheless, their data is consistent with their hypothesis, which could be very curious. I hope someone follows up on this research. There are other explanations for what they've found, number three here, though I'm not sure they have enough of the quality of data they need to show that their hypothesis is correct. And then fourthly, and finally, there could be no more to this than the high rate of mitochondrial DNA extinction. We need to look more closely at the diversity of nuclear genomes before we can really say for sure. So here is Wood's final thoughts, again, from a uh, creationist perspective. This could very well be consistent with a model of rapid diversions uh, of species immediately after the flood, such that all species really do begin diverging within the species at the same time. If this were evidence of the recent creation of species or the recent bottleneck at the flood, we would have to remodel much of creationist biology. But I still have so many significant reservations about this research, I'm not willing to get excited about it. They really do need to do more work on this before we can be certain that we're seeing what we think we're seeing. Close quote on that. So that's all I have for you this morning. I, I, I just wanted to run through that with you and kind of give you some perspective. I think it's really, really easy for someone who doesn't really understand or isn't really involved, plugged in to the um, to the current state of creationist um, biological research, uh, to look at that and say, "Hey, this looks really, really um, good." And so, I wanted to uh, be absolutely sure uh, to 
to bring out Dr. Wood's points because I think they're important. And sadly, um, you know, and I, you know, I hate naming names, uh, but sadly there have been some bigger creationist organizations to already, uh, trade on the notion that we are dealing with some very favorable research. Um, again, uh, simply because of the kind of language that's being used there. Um, you know, a, a recent a recent origin, all species are roughly the same age, um, could have been from a founding pair, there was a catastrophic event. Things like that sounds a lot like the creation story, but we need to be sure uh, to dig into the details to make sure that we're getting things right. Okay, so there is um, a, a lot, hopefully, that's going to come from this study. Hopefully, um I would like to see parts of this research be overturned. Um, I think um, creation um, barominologists um, have really made some significant strides in recent years, and uh, to have to rethink that at this point would um, would uh, you know it, it would be what it is, um, but it would certainly uh, be a setback. All right, so I uh, just wanted to give you that this morning. Hey, a couple things uh, by way of housekeeping, and I'll let you go. Um, so, uh, we are, of course, still, um, taking waitlist signups for the Creation Academy. All right. So please feel free to go to jointca.co and sign up for that. We're still looking forward, hopefully, to a early 2019 launch on that. I don't know the exact uh, dates and uh, still got a lot of details to work out, um, but uh, we're working on that, okay? I'd like to see that come to fruition, so get on the wait list. You can go ahead and join into the Facebook group and get on that. I'm excited also to announce that I'm going to have some products to offer very, very soon. Um we are, uh, I'm in the process of kind of repackaging uh, some of the lessons that I've done on the podcast. Um, I, I've done different series and things like that. And what I'm doing, and just in, in full transparency, I mean, I have no way right now to uh, to support uh, the workings of this ministry Um by itself, uh, this is very much a labor of love. I spend a lot of time and and money on this uh, on this ministry, and it's just out of pocket. And again, I'm I'm okay with that. Um, I, I'm not currently um, on a donation model of any sort. Well, of course, I do have a Patreon account, which you can um, see the the uh, the link to that in the show notes. Okay, I do have a Patreon account that you can use to help support this podcast if uh, you'd like to give a um, dollar per week or whatever. I would certainly, certainly. Um, welcome that and be thankful for that. But generally speaking, we don't take donations. We're not tax deductible, none of those things. And so um, we have started to look at creating some products um, to 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 sell on our website um, that might would be helpful uh, as resources. Of course, I, I don't plan on changing anything. I still have uh, my weekly podcast I'm doing and, of course, a weekly blog post over there at stevetram.com as well. Plan on keeping uh, doing that. I'm not going to stop that one bit. Um but so one of the things I'm doing is packaging um, some of the podcast series that we've done in the past. And what I'm going to do is package those up and edit uh, the audio to kind of cut out some of the extra talking and things like that. And um, uh, just really make it nice, re remaster the audio and uh, do some work on it to package it up. And 
looking at possibly, because uh, not everybody listens to podcasts, some people might just want to download the files and listen to them, or some might even want a CD. So what we're doing is taking a series, just uh, for example, the one I'm working on right now, I'm almost finished with, is um, the Basics of Creation Science series that we did at, at the very beginning, um, seemingly, uh, of this podcast. And so the audio is not that great on it, uh, but nevertheless, I think the content is still good and gives a, a good overall summary um, of the basics, what you need to basically know about the field of creation science. And so what I'm doing is packaging all that together, redoing the audio, and I'm also including a workbook with it. I've, I've developed for it a, a nice um, PDF workbook that can be downloaded or uh, either can be shipped with the um, CD product itself, and you can actually go through the workbook um, and fill in spaces and take notes and things like that right there on the paper. Um, and uh, uh, I think it's, honestly, I think it's going to be very nice, um, a good resource to help you go through and learn. Now, if you've been a long-time listener of the podcast, um, you might have already heard some of the content uh, that we'll offer in some of those, and so you might not want to purchase it. But you might want to because we go through, and again, we're 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 redoing some of the audio and we're packaging that workbook with it, it might help you to go through and be able to study more systematically. And of course, um, all of the, uh, all the extra stuff that just talks about the podcast and the ministry stuff in general is ripped out and they're just treated as weekly course lessons. Um, and so maybe you would want to jump on that. Maybe you would want to purchase one of those. Um, maybe, maybe you have found the information on this podcast helpful. You've listened to some of those series and maybe, um, you have somebody else that you'd like to share that information with um, who doesn't listen to podcasts, and maybe you want to give that as a gift. Would you consider doing that uh, when we get that up? Um, and uh, uh, so maybe that will be a way. You know, you could buy um, buy our information to, to give to somebody else. So that would be a real, real um, blessing to me. So got multiple ones in the works. I've actually got a deal that I'm super excited about. I haven't signed any contracts yet, but 90 98% sure it's happening, that I'm actually going to turn our 13-hour Searching for Adam series into one of these uh, downloadable um, or physical CD uh, courses. Um, and not only that, but with each one is going to be a um, PDF copy of not only a workbook, but also the actual book itself. I've worked out a deal with the publisher of the Searching for Adam book, and so you will actually be able to get um, the Searching for Adam book, the workbook, and the uh, audio content delivered to you completely uh, packaged up in one, one, one deal together. So maybe that's something you might want to buy for yourself for reference, or you might want to buy as a gift. All right. Well, that is it for this week on the Creation Academy. Hey, why don't we close in a word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, I love you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to study your word and your world. And thank you for the opportunity to tell others about it. We thank you for the truth that we have presented in your word. I pray now, Father, that you'd help us to be able to share it with others uh, boldly as we go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to thank you again, of course, for joining me this week here on the Creation Academy. And uh, we will see you next week, same time, same place. Thanks. <laughs>